Hi, everyone. Welcome to the No Smell Legal Stuff. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation. We're going to talk about um, the art of influence and what it means to be an advisor and how to advise folks that you may disagree with. Um, I have a special guest and she'll introduce herself in the moment. Uh, but before we begin, I would like to thank you for being here, for nominating uh, phenomenal speakers, including the one we have today, um, to be part of this conversation. As you know, I focus on basically all aspects of in-house practice, from substantive to sort of personal to community lives of in-house lawyers, because we know that in-house lawyers are humans first. Um, and they have interests that are both at work and outside. So if you have recommendations of who else should be part of this conversation, um, you can put uh, suggestions uh, in the notes, uh, in the comments, you can DM me, uh, or you can find me in, in various other places where I show up. Definitely let me know because I, I would love to bring uh, to the table as many folks uh, who represent the diversity of in-house practice. Uh, and with that in mind, uh, Caroline, welcome to the Nose to My Legal Self. Uh, please introduce yourself. Well, thanks. I'm just delighted to be here. Uh, Olga, we've known each other for a long time, so it's really fun to have an opportunity to chat with you. Uh, as you said, my name is Caroline Herzog. I am the general counsel of Arm Limited. We are a British uh, semiconductor IP company. We license our technology throughout the uh, semiconductor partner ecosystem. We're headquartered in Cambridge, UK, and we are a wholly owned subsidiary of SoftBank, uh, which many people have heard of, uh, which is a public Japanese company. Uh, I've been here actually yesterday was my fifth anniversary. Wow, that that's really cool. Well, congratulations on your anniversary. Um, and yes, uh, we've known each other for quite some time. Um, <laughs> I am really grateful when I was on my journey of becoming general counsel. You were one of a uh, number of women with whom I talked, who were generous with me, who inspired me to to become one and and, and help me on my journey. Um, and uh, your journey has been inspiring to me as well. So, so thank you for being a great example um, and, and continuing, um, you know, being a, one of well-known general counsel in Silicon Valley who is also willing to, uh, to help others um, and, uh, in both substantive uh, and sort of career choices. I, uh, I absolutely value our friendship. Um, what I would like to actually, you know, before we begin the substantive conversation of how to have, I guess, to some extent, difficult conversations with people who may disagree with you, um, you know, t tell tell the audience who may not as be as familiar with with your journey, um, you know, how you got to the job you have today. Uh, what were the stops on on on, on that journey? Well, I think um, to your point earlier, I, I think that having a, a network of people that support you is just critically important. And I've always felt that, you know, giving back and, and, and feeling that mutual support is incredibly important. So, um, you know, so thanks for your kind words. Um, and I feel the same way. I think, you know, being supported by people like you and others, and I was very lucky to have a very supportive uh, boss who's actually sort of the origin of the inspiration of, of this conversation uh, when I was at Symantec. I was at Symantec for 16 years. I was actually at a company that was acquired by Symantec. And so I spent about 20 years plus at, in cybersecurity before 
I joined the wonderful world of semiconductor. I think for those that spend time in the technology world, um, we're probably a little bit addicted to change, but we have this, you know, constant role of acronyms. And so you go from the security acronyms to the semiconductor acronyms, and they're all, you know, the same acronyms that mean completely different things. So, um, you know, being comfortable with change and, you know, and that adaptation is, is really important. Um, and, you know, having people that support you through that change is also important to let you know that it's okay. Other people have been through it. Uh, so I've been really fortunate in that I've worked with just tremendous people. Sometimes your, your, your work family is, is um, just an incredibly important part of your support network as well. And I've worked with just some tremendous people and for some tremendous people. Yeah. In the end of the day, it's all about you know, who you work with and for, um, and the people who guide you on the journey. You know, the uh, the subject of, this, of our conversation is sort of what it means to be right. And then most importantly, whether you have to be right to, you know, do the right thing. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, you, you think that those two things, uh, you know, fit together in a way that I think is somewhat special. Uh, why don't you share kind of, you know, the message and, and what it means to you? Yeah, so this this story it actually started back with actually my my former boss and I had moved over to Europe. I was living in the UK. I was in an environment where I wasn't getting very much support, um, which is a, a huge understatement from the general manager who was there, who was pretty uh, not happy with the team, not happy with the fact that I had moved over without really him being consulted and. Um, lots of things about just sort of general pressure, right? And I was I was feeling it. And he had, you know, sent a note sort of saying how, how terrible the team was doing. And it was very soon after I moved over. And I sent a note back to my boss that was probably a little too long, you know, for, for how he's a note to our boss and explaining and defending all the things that the team was doing right and explaining just you know, consistently how they were right. And he just wrote me back one one line that said perception is reality. <laughs> I went home and, you know, I uh, stewed and stomped my feet and told my husband how, you know, unjust this was and, you know, went back in the office that the next morning, actually, and by the time I got there, because it was one of those great, like, London commutes where I took the train and then a bus and then walked in the rain and got to the office. And I, I just had a new attitude because I realized by the time I got there that he was right. And so so what, what happened? What happened in, in that? What, what, what? I've certainly been in a moment where I had a reaction and then, yeah. and then I had a moment and then I come to my senses and then I gave a diplomatic answer. So I'm curious, um, how did you reach the enlightenment? Do you know, I think we've probably all been there. And, and in today's world, it's, it's a great example. And it's part of that leadership journey, right? I think when you, when you grow in your roles and you grow in your leadership journey, you start to realize that, and particularly as lawyers, right? We're, we're taught to argue our points and to be right. And how do you become right? And you check your precedents. And, and being right is, is part of our training. But in fact, when you move into an in-house environment, um, it's actually more important to have people want to come to you and to consult with you. And if you compare it to the outside world, and Olga, you and I were chatting about this a little bit, and the world is so fragmented with everybody being so right. You know, if anybody has teenagers out there, I mean, I, I have teenagers, and when anybody brings a toddler over to my, you know, house, I'm like, please just let me play with your toddler. Like, you know, I mean, I love my kids, but they are so right. And 
you know, I think about, you know, RBG and, and her relationship with those that, you know, you know, you know, Anton Scalia is just some sort of how they were friends, but had very opposing views. And it's an inspiration, I think, to be able to think about, gosh, when we have opposing views, how do we bring that a little bit closer? And, um, and one is to show interest and empathy and, you know, try to understand the other person's position to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And if you try to do that, even though you just really aren't interested, um, it's, you can, you can come a little closer. That's very interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. And you're right, RBG and, and Scalia had a very special relationship. It, it was not a relationship of a lot of agreement, but it was um, a, a relationship of respect. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to when you say we may not agree on what's right, but we may agree on you and I having conversation. Um, and, and working through the immediate problems. And, uh, and it, it, it's, it's very interesting that you mentioned that really what's really important, especially when you're in a position of giving advice, is that people come to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, as someone who, you know, been in general counsel roles for a while, and I'm sure have had, you know, your fair share of disagreements as an in-house leader, how do you make sure, like, what are, what are the ingredients of people coming to you repeatedly? How do you, how do you sort of facilitate that conversation, ongoing conversation with folks internally? I think one of the things that we all want is to help people make better decisions. Um, you know, we don't want to be the department of no, we don't want to be the department of yes, we want to be better educators. So the more that we understand about our business and the more that we understand our clients, because we have internal clients, um, the better off we are to help people make better decisions. There's very few things that we do where it's, you know, that is against the law and thou shalt not cross that line. Mm -hmm. The majority of what we do is looking at risk and balancing risk and saying, is that an appropriate risk for us to take? Is it a reputational risk? Is it a legal risk that might cost us some money? Um, is that a risk that might impact another area of the business? And is that appropriate? Do we need to talk to somebody else? So the more educated we are and the better we are at looking at that, even though we may have a very strong opinion, um, you know, and, and the more that we can understand, you know, who needs to be involved, all the Daisy modeling and the Racy modeling, uh, the better off we'll be at helping others make the better decision. Many people want to come to you if you feel if they feel like you're going to help them be better decision makers. Yeah, the quality the quality of decision making on on everybody's part, not on just on their part, but on yours, will um, improve in the process. I think what you when you when you talked, you mentioned a couple a couple of things. You, it seems like the first part is actually improving your understanding of the business or industry, kind of working on yourself. But I think this sounds like the second part is also uh, being a better educator and facilitating the conversation and, and, and kind of working through that. Um, so I'm going to just kind of separate the two uh, because I would like to kind of uh, get to the, to the part how we make that soup, right? Let's talk about how you first educate yourself. Um, you know, when you approach a business, when you join the company or you transition and role, how do you, like, what is, what is the sort of the, 
the first three, five things you do to be better educated? And then how do you sort of maintain that education as you go forward? Yeah, fantastic question. I mean, one, and, and, and this was really relevant for me coming into ARM where, you know, I kind of threw, got thrown in and they were speaking a different language to me. I felt so confident in my technological ability. I understood so much about cybersecurity after 20 years and all of a sudden, um, you know, people were speaking a different language. And so I needed to find the right people to help explain the business to me. And that could explain it in a way that I could digest. And of course, I had my fantastic legal team members who could walk through how we conduct the business. Then I needed to understand, you know, where were the gaps in, in sort of areas that, you know, where we did things well and did not. And of course, our really valued outside counsel. There were counsel that had worked with the company for years and really understood how we did things and how we executed in the market. So that education really matters. And one of the things that I always talk about with the important relationship with outside counsel is that it should be a partnership. It should be something where outside counsel, and I hope a diverse group of outside counsel that we get a better reflection. And it's something I think we should all be talking about more and more is making sure that we're promoting good diversity inside the company and with the people that we work with outside the company, that we're both getting education along the way. So I want our external counsel to learn more about our company and how we do business and what's important to us. And I want them to be educating you know, our internal team so that we get better at what we do from a legal perspective and we grow together so that our reliance continues to evolve and change over time. Yeah, um, that's a very important relationship and I, I really love the way you approach it. Um, the second thing you mentioned is um, convincing your stakeholders that whether you agree or disagree, it is more about, in the end, making better decisions. Um, how do you, you know, what are the steps of, of actually getting that message that it's not about me telling you what to do, it's not about me winning or doing what I think is right, it is the process of of reaching better decisions for the company we all care about <laughs> yeah. or for the society we care about, right? Because sometimes depending on the product, that may be as equally important. So how do you um, have this ongoing conversations with your internal clients to convince that really it's less about egos and who's right. It's more about the quality of the decision-making. I think one of the things that really helps is trying to understand the objective because one of the council adds in, in having a view on things is that we do tend to look at things both in what are, what are the short-term objectives and what are the long-term objectives and what are the potential impacts of both. And so when we think about what are the things from a risk perspective and from an opportunity, and I think we can look at you know, legal and compliance as an opportunity as well, and really try to explain that as an opportunity. Um, we look both short and long term and everything in between. And so when you're talking to a business partner or anyone in, you know, across the enterprise functions around a key concern, asking them what their objectives are and really being interested in how can we achieve that together? There's often not one answer, um, but how do we look at the key risks and opportunities and how do we get to 
let's start with the objective. What are you trying to achieve? And then how can we work on that together within the frameworks? And, and it's that interest and respect. And it sounds like part of it is actually agreeing of the, on the components of those objectives. How, how, how are we going to tell if they're going to be reached, right? So yeah. it's sort of agreeing on the not only objectives, but how success would be measured as part of that conversation. I, I want to move to a slightly different conversation. I have a few more questions. Uh, I do want to close this conversation of sort of better decision-making. Uh, we sort of looked at different ingredients. Are there any ingredients that I, I should have asked or you want to add um, just kind of, are there any other characteristics of in-house counsel to really help your internal stakeholders to improve the quality of their decision-making? You know, one thing that I have noticed is that, you know, there are some organizations that just escalate too fast, right? They, they, they all say like, well, I'm going to go straight to the CEO or I'm going to go to the board or whatever it is. And then some organizations don't escalate at all. So there is an art of escalation where sometimes when you're at, you know, you're just at an impasse because you can't agree. There's nothing wrong with bringing in others to try and help you make the decision. Sometimes you do need a little bit of help, but the art of escalation, um, which I use intentionally, is, is actually helpful. Sometimes you need to bring in another voice to say, okay, help me moderate this. Um, this is what this person says. This is what that person says. Again, we're not using judgment. People have come to the table with different opinions, but we need a little bit of help. Um, and so I think there is a matter of not using escalation as a weapon, but as a, a, another tool in the toolbox to help people make the decisions when they need to. That's a very interesting point. Um, actually, let's talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> um, because you're right, you know, escalation could be used as a threat. If you don't do it my way, let's go to the CEO. That, that, that's in a nutshell, uh, I think, what you're referring to. But what you're saying is that that could be another data point. <laughs> um, and another sort of maybe we should refine our objective and maybe we should kind of change the, 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 the matrix of how we measure success, right? Um, and um, I guess I'm just curious if, you know, if I were the internal client you disagree with, how would you have how would you have a conversation with me? Let's escalate, but please feel good about it. Um, it's it's not me punishing you for not agreeing. It is me actually allowing thinking that maybe I'm not having all the information or maybe not entirely right. How would you actually have that conversation with me um, to 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 bring me along on this journey of of uh, escalating and gain, gaining my support at the same time? I think having a constructive conversation and, and again, always with respect and, and demonstrating that I respect your views, um, you know, we seem to be at an impasse and escalation doesn't necessarily always have to include a step up. It could be a step out. Um, you know, it seems like we need a little bit more information to help us make a decision. Um, here's who I think we need to help us make this decision. Let's bring our facts to the table. Let's articulate this in an easy way for the person to digest, because I think you have to know your audience. You know, I know I know that um, my current company, some of the executives prefer a little more information. Some prefer less. In my prior company, there was definitely a former a formal sort of way in that you would 
less is more unless they ask you for more information. And so you kind of have to know your audience as well to set people up for success if you're going to bring a problem set to somebody else to help you make the decision. And to clarify, when you, I understand the step up, you know, it's it maybe direct manager or CEO or whomever is up, is up. It's, that's usually clear in the organization. The step yeah. out, I would like to, a little bit more clarification. Are, are you referring to like an outside counsel or an expert? Like what, what, what are the examples of stepping out? It could be like a stakeholder, right? So you could be talking to a salesperson and maybe you need help with a product you know, person to help you make a decision. Um, there could be, I mean, many companies and most companies will have actual escalation matrices. Like you might have a very clear matrix to say, well, this, this, this requires this person's decision um, before we can move forward because we need finance approval or we need this or we need that, right? So this is sort of outside the scope of formal approvals matrices. But it may be that you're dealing with something that's particularly complicated and you may need some technical expertise to fit feed in or let's deal. Let's go talk to the prior account manager on something. So I'm sort of thinking, you know, look, we're at an impasse. You have a particular view on this issue. I have a view. Is it possible? You know, do, do we just need the next level up or do we need somebody else to consult with to help us brainstorm through this a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting, and um, I, uh, I I I love the way you you, you think about it. Um, I want to I do want to talk about before we end about um, you know doing the right thing, the diversity and the inclusion part of it, especially because you mentioned and you sort of mentioned it in two contexts, and I will just sort of separate it into questions. One internally, uh, how do you make sure that you know uh, we have voices on our teams that represent points of view? Uh, and then help us be a better company. And then, of course, I also want to talk about external, including outside counsel. Kind of what are what are the steps you recommend? But let's start with 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 your team as a leader. Um, kind of like what is your philosophy, and how do you how do you you know what does it mean to you? How do you approach it, and 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 and, and how do you do that intentionally? Well, I think the D and the I are are you know, they, they obviously form a very important view from, from diversity and inclusion, but they are different things. Um, and so ensuring that everybody has a voice at the table um, and that, you know, you're including the introverts and the extroverts or people that have different experiences um, is, is really critically important. And that takes practice and it create and, and it requires creating a safe environment, uh, a safe environment for dissent, a safe environment for, um, you know, different different views. And it also then from that different view perspective requires a diverse team. And diversity comes in all different forms. And, you know, I have always been somebody who believes in um, diversity for the sake of ensuring those different views are present, that um, it, it, it drives innovation. I think that there's been enough proof around that and that we are a better team that will be more innovative, that will be safer in our, in our views towards driving innovation and sharing different views if we have better diversity. And that has to trickle out. Now, I will always hire the best person. Um, and, I, and I believe in ensuring that we have a process for bringing diverse candidates in and hiring the best person, but without a doubt, making sure that you have those diverse views, whether they're race, gender, LGBTQ, 
you know, people from different countries, people from different life experiences that you really make an effort to, to bring that into the team. So I, I want to slowly shift gears to outside council because you, you mentioned the issue of diversity there. Um, both in the context of internal team and outside council, um, kind of what are the specific steps, you know, or practices that you find um, helpful in making sure that you have, you know, sort of voices represented and the level of safety uh, that needs to be there for those voices to be heard? So one, I think um, we can't be hypocrites, right? So we should not, as in-house counsel, demand of our external counsel something that we're not standing behind ourselves. So that's a first point. And I think there are bigger companies and smaller companies, and there are certain demands that bigger companies can make that smaller companies can't. And I also think from a multinational perspective, we have to set different expectations of firms in different places. So sometimes we have a very American view. And from a DNI perspective, there may be standards that we set and expect that when we're speaking with a firm in France, in Korea, in Japan, you know, that, that are just not the same. And so they may want to nod and be polite and say, yes, of course, we stand by everything you say. Um, and as firmly as we may believe in it, they're just not able to execute at the same level. So we should align our expectations with local expectations. And some of the things that I'm working on with external partners, with ACC and others is looking at also what, what are the local laws and you know, ensuring that our diversity and inclusion initiatives actually map to local laws. And, and how do you help and you know, help local managers and leaders talk about diversity in a way that is compliant with local laws and that is consistent with local culture while also pushing and saying this is from a core values perspective what the company believes in. And I, I think that's really important because having lived overseas, as, as many people have, and, and lived in different countries, the way that people are ready to talk about diversity and push diversity is going to be very different. Um, so I think that's just critically important. Yeah, yeah, very interesting, um, especially in the context of operating a multinational. Um, and so you may end as well end up with multiple definitions of what um, diverse teams look like and, 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 and how they show up. Uh, certainly very challenging reconciling within sort of one office of general counsel or one company. Um, coming to the end, I have last question, and then I, I want to make sure that you sort of uh, share your takeaway for the folks. Um, you know, pandemic on the one hand, you know, might have made some DNI uh, initiatives easier. On the other hand, it could have made some DE and I initiatives harder. <laughs> so I'm just curious. Um, in our, like, what is the good and the bad and the ugly? What is the, what are where the opportunities and 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 what actually been useful to see in pandemic? from that perspective? Yeah, it's such a good question. I'm curious how others have experienced it. I, I have found that um, on the one hand, we've been very lucky as a company in that we brought in um, a chief diversity officer, new person to, to help lead the initiative. So we've set um, new goals, new mandates. We are now saying that everybody in the company is going to be rated on how active they are in diversity. Um, we set up new ERGs and 
are getting more rigorous around how we're leading uh, on DNI. So I feel really pleased that we're actually making some tremendous progress. On the other hand, the inability to go out and see people and meet people um, has lowered the energy around DNI. And so while people are very passionate about the subject and we're doing lots of training and lots of education and lots of activity to on, at the corporate level around this, the the local activity, the ability to go to a local conference, the ability to meet and set up a book club or things like that have just, um, the, the activities have just gone down. And so it's very hard to get the energy that you get when you're in a room with a bunch of people that you connect with because of your underrepresentation. And um, and so we're, we're picking up things, we're trying to do some new things um, you know, raising topics that are maybe just harder to talk about and asking people to just have an open forum, um, you know, doing more blogs. But I think there's been certain points where people just thought this was going to be over and they're like, oh, another Zoom call or another blog or, you know, it, you kind of, you had a little bit of peaks of energy where people wanted to engage in, in new forms of social media or ways to connect and then, and then dips where they're just kind of exhausted. Um, so it's a, it's a great question. I'm always interested to hear what other yeah, yeah. It sounds like it's a mixed bag. And I, I would say that's consistent with, you know, my experiences and what I've heard from others. I, I find it interesting when you said that now everybody is rated on, you know, the intentionality of D, E, and I um, kind of um, um, initiative. Um, curious kind of what has been the response to, to, to that? I think it's been kind of what you would expect. Um, you know, people are, um, we have, we're, we are, every company has its own personalities, right? You know, not surprisingly, um, we're a very engineering driven company. So people are well-intended. People are very interested in the subject because there's been a lot of really excellent training. Um, but people really want to know, we tend, we can be very black and white in our organization. Um, and so people really want to know, well, specifically tell me what is active and I will go do that. Um, and I really try to encourage, um, you know, be curious. I'm not asking everybody to change their views. I'm not asking everybody to be as passionate as I am about this subject. I've been involved in it my whole life. I'm not asking everybody to agree going back to our first, you know, point in this conversation. I just want people to, to, to be curious and to seek out information. And obviously, if you're a major detractor um, or if you've done anything that is harmful to others in a discriminatory way, in a in, you know, harassing way, um, that'll end up you know, with my Office of Ethics and Compliance anyways. Or I'm assuming that people are getting enough education that they're going to have constructive conversations to try and help you understand how why that was not a nice thing to say. Um, and, and maybe you get a little bit more education and you realize, oh, you know, maybe people got away with that in 1968, but it's not okay today. And so, um, and, and why that's harmful. And so maybe they didn't have bad intentions, but they're learning. And so it's a curiosity element for me that is showing there's different levels of active, but I'm okay with that kind of level of active. So... I like the way you think about it. I, I let me let me think about the the you know the requirement of active. I, I it was really interesting for me to hear you articulate. I um I, I it, it's I can you know I think you're right. It goes back to this uh, initial conversation of better decision making uh, because just like with any issue, including D and I, 
there will be different approaches and point of views. Um, and I like the way you talk about active uh, sort of intellectual curiosity uh, and, and kind of continuing this conversation that may ultimately kind of get us to, as a company, to a better decision-making on this topic. Um, we're coming to the end. I, I want to give you an opportunity to, um, you know, maybe say one or two takeaways I, 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 on either subject, DNI or both, really, or, you know, decision-making, the quality of decision-making um, uh, that, that in-house lawyers can facilitate. Um, if, if, if one folks to get one thing out of this conversation, um, what would it be? Well, I think one is that, you know, we're constantly on a learning journey. And so, you know, for me, you know, you take the DNI subject, I'm, I'm learning a ton. Like I said, I have teenagers and, and some things that I say, they say, well, mom, you, you can't, you can't say that anymore. Um, and, you know, I was an exec sponsor for the Women's Network. Now I'm an exec sponsor for the Pride Network. And I think we all, you know, one thing that we're learning through the pandemic is that we are listening a little bit more and we are um, spending more time, you know, through these video conferences, talking or thinking about what we want to communicate and communication is key. So when you think about perception is reality or being right, um, you know, a key you know, quality for leaders in law or any type of leader is empathy. And, you know, trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes um, from a DNI perspective, from a leadership perspective, understanding the arguments is not about whether your position is right. You can learn so much by just trying to hear what somebody else has to say. You may not change your mind and you may not change their mind, but you both will learn something, I would hope. And that makes us better at our jobs as leaders. Absolutely. Caroline, thank you so much. It's been a, a one, it's great to catch up with you. And, I, I, and I enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank um, you. Yeah. Th so um, viewers, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Uh, you know, for me, this quality of decision making uh, is a very interesting concept and uh, something that you can implement in, you know, intentionally in your daily life as you go through your practice and, you know, kind of just through personal journey. Uh, it's a, an on the example of RBG and Scalia and what Caroline shared, um, you know, the collective good that arises from, you know, uplifting the, the quality of conversations and decision-making is, is quite great and, and far exceed the importance of being right. Um, I, I, similar to Caroline, have experiences where my kids put a mirror in front of me and enlightened me in the process. I guess that may be the reason why we have kids and they continue telling us uh, how to learn and, and keep us accountable. And then the last part is uh, the, the art of escalation. Um, I, 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 I really love the, uh, the quite enlightened way uh, to think about it as another tool in your toolbox um, when it comes to better decision-making. Um, if you have any comments or thoughts, please reach out to myself or Caroline. And then of course, if you have other enlightened leaders uh, who can speak on either career, substantive law, or community initiatives, let me know. Um, as I said, in-house lawyers are, have diverse interests and they're human first. And I wanna make sure that they are represented in our conversations. So thank you so much and we'll continue this conversation next time. Bye everyone.